guys, and welcome to another Outlaws of Horror podcast tonight. Uh, I'm on hosting duties, Colin Corcoran, and I'm joined by Outlaw Alan. Hello, guys. And today we uh, are having a special guest. He's recently published a new book, and we're going to be talking lots about the book because it is an extension of the Romero universe. That's right. We've got Daniel Krausch joining us tonight on the podcast. Uh, Daniel is a New York Times best-selling author. He's collaborated in the past the likes of Guillermo del Toro on The Shape of Water. Uh, but also in his own right, he has produced a uh, numerous suite of works over the past few years, including uh, the likes of Blood Sugar, The Shape of Water, uh, the, life, the Death and Life of Zebulon Finch. That's a two-volume epic, Troll Hunter, which I believe was another uh, collaboration, uh, Scowler, Waters, The Monster Variations. Uh, he has also uh, picked up awards, uh, namely two Odyssey Awards uh, for the aforementioned Waters and Scowler, uh, and has been a Library Guild uh, selection. Uh, he's also won some Best Fiction for Young Adult Awards. Uh, to top that all off as well, he's a Bram Stoker finalist. Uh, all in all, a good guy, a great Romero fan. Uh, his work that he's put together uh, in collaboration with George Romero is, is quite astounding. And we're lucky enough to have him on the podcast and talk about it this evening. Uh, I'll now bring Daniel into the podcast. Hey, Daniel, can you hear us? Hi, Daniel, how's it going? Good, good, good. How are you two? Not too bad. Very good, thank you. I'll do a very quick uh, introduction. This is Alan Keane. Alan's one of our Outlaws of Horror and a uh, fellow published author. So I think he's going to be looking to grill you a bit as a fellow author. All right. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, not not grill as in, you know, grill, but just (laughs) asking loads of questions about the whole week. Right, right. Well, I'm open to either. Let's see what happens. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. Well, thank you for again for joining us, Daniel. Uh, I gave you a little bit of an introduction uh, based on what your uh, author's notes uh, tell us. So hopefully that's all going to be good. Uh, yeah. And I've just basically got some nice conversation pieces. So what I was hoping you might be able to do for us, because uh, I've sort of seen some minutes of the story and that's very interesting, uh, is just basically give us an idea of how you came to be involved with this George Romero project, the collaboration, uh, mm-hmm. and ultimately the, uh, the book itself. Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Then fire away. Oh, that was the beginning. That was the beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, I thought you said that you were going to tell me how it was going to begin. Okay. Uh, all right. So how did I come involved with this? Um, George Romero died in 2017, and um, he died after a uh, short um, uh, span of having uh, cancer, um, just a few months. And then about a month after he died, I got a call from his uh, estate. And that's a fancy way of saying his wife and manager. And... They said they had this, uh, they were going through George's stuff, um, his work that he was um, in the middle of 
that wasn't, you know, otherwise tied up with various entities. And he had this, and first and foremost among them was this novel that he'd been working on for quite a while, uh, a good 10 years on and off. And they wanted to know if I could, uh, if I would be interested in taking a stab at finishing it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I said, immediately said, yes, um, George was my favorite uh, artist, uh, not just my favorite filmmaker, but my favorite artist, period. And I had really grown up on his films um, in the same way that other kids might grow up on Star Wars or something. He was just a very important uh, figure to me. So, I mean, that's kind of the, the bare bones of what happened. Uh, then I proposed, you know, then I put together, after reading George's manuscript, what he had written of it, I put together a proposal of where I would go with it, and they liked that. And then we, um, uh, and then we went forward from there. You know, we sold the book, and I started working on it. And it was a a long, complicated process. So, if we go a step back, just briefly, understand that you uh, first of all have a quite a long relationship with Night of the Living Dead. From what I understand, you yeah. uh, were exposed, if that's the right word, to that as a young young child can you tell us a little bit about that Just yeah i was e- i was exposed to the contamination yeah right um so yeah i saw night limb dead when i was five or six years old is what i keep saying um but although i think you know it's hard to remember yeah. back that young um and you know it made a huge impact on me it was i watched that in twilight zone uh, those were the two things that my mom really liked. And Night Living Dead, because it was public domain, was on all the time. So I saw it constantly growing up. I would see Twilight Zone every week when my mom watched it. Um, so I didn't see Night Living Dead quite that often, but it was a lot. Um, and it so it really was the first movie that had a major impact on me. Um, I'm sure I saw, you know, Disney movies and other things like that as a kid too, but I don't remember those at a, at such a young age, but I do remember Night of the Living Dead and then watching it and kind of growing up with it. I think that's a, that's a sign of a, a real classic uh, in any medium when you, when the movie seems to change with you as you grow up, you know, I think as a little kid, uh, I wasn't particularly scared by it because my mom wasn't scared by it. It was, she was laughing along to the characters and shouting at them. Um, so it was not a, it was not a scary type situation for me, but as I got older, the, the, my reaction to the movie changed as I began to understand what it was about. Um, certainly from a young age, the ending of it was very startling. Um, you know, the main character of Ben was, was really kind of my hero. Uh, and there, there was, you know, it was never, even back then, it was never funny when, when Ben died. That was always serious business. Uh, and then eventually I got introduced to other Romero movies. Um, I think Day of the Dead was the next one I saw a number, quite a number of years later. Um, and then from there, it just really became a, a fanatic um, and just was a, a deeply, deeply interested in his work and not just his zombie films. It was, I was really all of his his work became very important to me. And I think that was part of what was important to the estate when, when finding someone to work on this book that, you know, there are any number of people out there who have written 
zombie books. So mm. they weren't, it was, they weren't really looking for someone who had written zombies before. Um, and I hadn't and had no in, intention of doing it actually. Uh, what they were looking for was somebody who had a proven record of collaborating, which I did. Um, and just someone who had a deep appreciation for George Romero as a whole. My interest was never specifically zombies. So I'm just a bit curious, <clears throat> just to pick through the timeline, a uh, uh, little bit of your early life and mm-hmm. the movies. So you've, you've, you're five or six years old. You've seen Night of the Living Dead. Now, what year is that around about? Just Well, that? I was born in 1975. So that would have been, you know, 1981, somewhere in that. So I'm just curious. So Dawn of the Dead has been made, but you managed yep. to find Day of the Dead first because mm-hmm. you said you watched them, which is one of my personal favorites. Yeah. So was it after seeing Day of the Dead, you then went backwards to find Dawn or you didn't know about it? You moved forward? Yeah. I mean, these were, you know, these were obviously pre-internet days, uh, I didn't have, I, and I lived in a small town in Iowa, which is in the middle of the country, very rural. Uh, so I had no ability to even know who George Romero was. I mean, I just, he was just the name on Night Living Dead. Uh, it wasn't until later that video stores started popping up that I could identify uh, that name on other movies. So Day of the Dead actually came on TV. That's the first time I saw that. Oh, cool. Um, I'm sure it was edited. Um, yeah, probably it was cut. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 And then eventually through video stores, you know, began to put the pieces together. Said, okay, so he's made this other movie, Dawn of the Dead. And then he's made Creepshow. You know, like I was a big fan of Creepshow before I knew it was a... I really connected it with Night of the Living Dead. Uh, those... It, it took a long time back then to understand who these filmmakers even were. You could or, just jump onto IMDb and look at their filmography, no. could you? you had to and it's not like I, and it's not like I had anyone teaching me about this stuff either. There was, there was no resource book to look at. There was no, uh, I, I didn't know anyone who was into this stuff. The closest thing that came to it was in middle school. I, uh, I read Stephen King's Dance Macabre. Oh. And that, and that opened up a ton of doors. That ended up being probably the key book in my uh, young life because suddenly he was talking about all these books and all these movies and all these TV shows I had never heard of. And suddenly I was saying, okay, George Romero, he, he's this type of guy, and he lives in Pittsburgh, and he made these movies. And uh, that book was was huge and unlocking a lot of doors. Some of which I'm still tracking down to this day. Cool. So if we move slightly, well, not maybe slightly, maybe uh, some way forward, because I know then uh, you met George in 2005. Is that right? I believe you were lucky enough to meet George. I never got to meet George. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't an opportunity I got. So, so you meet George in 2005. But I think before then you managed to piece together some connections with his agent. Is that right? Yep. Um, I knew his agent uh, in a weird, very weird kind of way. We both went to the same tiny high school together. Wow. And we didn't really know each other. Uh, but I, I vaguely remember, he was older than me. I vaguely remembered him. Uh, we didn't, we weren't in touch. We didn't hang out. Um, so, you know, many, many years after high school, I was reading a, uh, article about George Amiro and it, uh, it, uh, mentioned his manager was named Chris Rowe. And I was like, 
I wonder if there's any way that could be the same Chris Rowe that I went to high school with. I mean, it's a one in a million chance. Mm. And uh, it was. And I said, hey, um, I, I got in contact with him and said, I don't know if you remember me. Uh, we, went to the, we lived in the same small town. Um, and I'm a big George Romero fan. And so he said, all right, next time I'm in Chicago with George, let's, let's all get together. And so they did. And uh, uh, I, I, you know, went to the hotel and I hung out with them a little while. And that was it. You know, it was just a, it was a brief social meeting where we just kind of um, had a drink and hung out. And then that was it for another 10 or 12 years until uh, George died. So George has passed away and you've received the call from Suze to start looking into the project that he's left unfinished, uh, which I believe might have started as the death of death, but then it kind of grew and uh, evolved from there. And I know you had a lot of access to the archives and everything. Mm -hmm. So Adam, do you mind just taking us through the origin of that and then how it became where we are now, that sort of journey? Sure, sure. So the... It didn't really begin with the death of death, um, but but I'll explain how that works into it. Uh, so he'd been working on The Living Dead, the novel, for about 10 years on and off. Uh, so originally, that's all we had. Um, we just had those pages. And so I began to work uh, on, after making the proposal and all that and selling the book, I began to work on the project. Um, and then I came across evidence and I thought I had known a lot about George Romero, but but I did not know about the death of death, which was this uh, similar idea uh, back in the year two thousand, I think. Uh, he had he had he had begun uh, a, a giant epic zombie novel, sort of similar to this one in some ways, uh, but only got a couple chapters into it and then uh, given up. But people, but some people out there knew about it because he had. Back, way back then, he had a website just for a few years and then he, before he killed it. And he sent this first couple chapters out for a couple bucks if you put your email into the forum. Um, uh, probably a few people did that. The website shut down. Everyone forgot it existed. But we found it, um, and it was, it was two chapters, but they were really long chapters. Uh, it was 100 pages total. Oh, wow. So it was it was quite a significant new chunk to get, um, and on top of all that, it was fantastic, uh, really cool stuff. So I got permission to use that too, <clears throat> and eventually I also dug up an old short story he had written for the website that nobody knew existed. Uh, and then eventually, we found, his manager found notes, like nine pages of notes about where he was going with certain plot threads in the book. So we had all this material from all these different places, uh, the biggest chunk of which was just what he wrote on The Living Dead. But we had a bunch of other stuff too. So the process was unusual because it, was, it wasn't just George writing half a book and stopping. Uh, it was much more complicated. He had written stuff for the beginning, for the end, stuff that lo was located in the middle. And for me, it was a matter of filling lots and lots of holes um but always making it back to his next point so i kind of had to not go too far off field and be able to hit next the next point along george's journey mm -hmm. so in that way it was almost like having 
uh, a, a normal collaborator in that there was someone else steering me a little bit. Like I could do my own thing, but then I had to come back and do George's thing a little bit. Um, so that made it, that, that was actually great because that's, that made George present throughout the whole book. I'm going to ask you, Dan, um, how surreal was it? Because you said that, um, you know, George was your favorite artist, you know, ever. And here you are, you, you know, you're finishing, you know, his, his, his book that he started. I mean, did you feel uh, like any undue pressure? Did you put any pressure on yourself to make it feel, you know, to make it be good or? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. It's, uh, I certainly didn't get pressure from the estate. Like once I had done the proposal of what, where I thought the project should go, they, they pretty much just stepped away and said, all right, do your thing. And then when I had a draft ready for them, then I, I gave it to them to look at. Uh, the, the pressure definitely came from myself. Um, you know, it, Night Living Dead being the first thing that I remember as a, a work of art, uh, this sort of is the end of that story. So to to be part of the end of the thing that was sort of my origin story as an artist, uh, that that's a lot to, to process. That's um, it's yeah, it is surreal. It's still surreal. You know, when I look at this book sitting right here, it's still hard for me to understand how how it exists uh and i and i suppose that's you know one way to strike yourself with uh paralysis is to to think about that too much so my uh strategy was to just not think about it as much as i could and there was a lot of work to be done so much work starting with so much research and that was stuff i could start right away so that that's what i did i just started working immediately so that I just wasn't thinking about any of that other stuff. I was just focusing on the, the work. And uh, from what I understand, you've got some quite good privileged access in to George's archive. Is that right? I think you managed to um, dig quite deep. Yes. I mean, I did have access to his archive, but that was actually much later when the, okay. when the book was practically finished. Uh, these, these pieces of, um, uh, of other pieces of George's writing that that's all stuff we found early. His archives are now at the University of Pittsburgh, and they'll be public relatively soon. Oh, cool! And I was able to go to them and look through them early. And there's, you know, they're amazing. There's so many surprises in there. People are really going to be um, excited about. Uh, but that stuff that that came much later, and really, uh, I had everything I needed, and there wasn't really anything in the archives to add to the material. Um, that I already had. So it's not like I went to the archives and discovered a treasure trove of things that would have helped this project. Right. What was more helpful really was just um, talking to the people who knew him, especially his wife, and really, really digging deep with her about what kind of person he was, what his beliefs were, uh, what kind of stuff did he hate, what kind of stuff did he love. And that that really guided a lot of where the book went. Good, good. So I I guess this book kind of is a, the, maybe, I don't know, but it could be the end to the zombie universe that George has created in, in kind of tandem with, this, with, the, with the movies. And I know there's a lot of uh, discussion around the timeline of these mm -hmm. movies. So I'm just thinking, uh, could you set out your timeline and where the book slots in with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
one of the very first things I had to do, and I'm going to look at re refer to my author's note here, uh, was I had to establish a timeline uh, of his movies, and that's not straightforward. the The timeline of the films is not chronological to how they were released. Uh, Romero, when he thought about the zombie epidemic, um, thought about it. He, he he ignored decade shifts. Like that's pretty obvious. Night of the Living Dead is 1968. Um, Dawn of the Dead doesn't come out till the 70s, and yet it takes place, you know, um, what is it? Uh, three weeks later. So, you know, you have to ignore the decade shifts. Yeah. So if you're just looking at how far from the epidemic um, or the uprising from that point onward, the, the correct um, sequence is night, diary, survival, dawn, land, and day. Uh, so, and some of that information was easy to, to know because some of the movies will just say right in the film, how far apart, how long the zombies have been around. Other ones weren't easy. I had to go to either the commentary tracks or sometimes the original screenplays. In the case of Dawn of the Dead, I went to the novelization that he had written, um, co-written. Um, so eventually I pieced it all together. Uh, so that gave me the ability to say, all right, so here's how George dealt with the beginning of the zombie uprising to year five, because Day of the Dead is five years out. Okay, yep. Um, and I knew this from various things in the manuscript, that the, the book was going to go much further. It was going to go what ended up being about 15 years into the future. So the timeline with the book, I mean, the book reboots it to day one, just like he did with uh, Diary of the Dead. But um, if you wanted the full experience, uh, you could watch all, no, you could read the book, read the first act of the book, stop, watch all six of his movies in the order that I mentioned them. <laughs> I don't know if that's any dissent or agreement. <laughs> and then read acts two and three of the book. Uh, then you would have this the full scope of Romero's zombie story. And yeah, the book does sort of end it. Um, that doesn't mean um, that doesn't mean someone else, not everyone will necessarily agree with my interpretation of the ending. Is, to some extent, they have to because George has dictated a lot of the ending himself. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, like the, the, how and how. Even if you go to the final scene in the book, that's that was dictated by George. Like he he wanted he wanted it to take place in a certain place with certain characters, um, but within that, there's nuance that I had to come up with. Um, so somebody else could, in theory, you know, disagree with all that, um, and they're, they're free to. But yeah, the book does posit sort of an end to the whole thing. No, yeah, I mean, I've read the book. I managed to squeeze in reading it. I've, it came uh, last weekend. And I was determined to read it, and uh, I managed to finish it just before we've speaking this evening or this afternoon for you. And it's a real sprawling epic, uh, and yeah, I can certainly see uh, some of George's signature stuff at the end. It is it is really mm -hmm. I won't say anything, I'll give it away, but yeah, I certainly certainly agree with that. Uh, I suppose what that makes me think, uh, just dropping back into some of George's archive and then the films as we've talked about, did you? 
dip into any of his other films to get any kind of inspiration or influence oh, yeah. or any information? Definitely. Yeah, I didn't just study the zombie films. I mean, I had a pretty good uh, grasp on all of his movies before, but I definitely went back and watched all of them again. Um, and when there were commentary tracks by George, I'd watch those too. Um, and then, of course, read countless interviews and stuff like that just to get a to see if he would ever drop little clues here and there. And then occasionally he would. Um, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted a broad sense of who he was as an artist because you know it's it's not. It's not a secret that he, you know, uh, he wasn't a huge horror fan, you know, in the in the sort of maturity of his life. I think as a as a young artist, he was. Uh, but he, you know, he never watched horror movies anymore. He didn't he didn't uh, read horror uh, and he didn't start as someone who thought he was going to make horror movies. So um, the zombies were something he kind of backed into and became so popular that he uh sort of had to deal with them like that those were the tools that he had been given by fate and he was going to have to make his stories some of his stories using them as uh the metaphorical tools to tell his stories um so therefore yeah i wanted to study everything to get a sense of um everything else he wanted to do and yeah if i, I suppose if i had had access to the archives at the beginning that process would have been broader, sure, because he had, you know, just so many unproduced scripts that would have, that note undoubtedly would have given an even fuller picture of his interests. Um, but yeah, I did the best I could uh, using all of the uh, produced documents. And those were key. Those were really key. Uh, his films, as well as the films that he loved. I studied those as well. The Tales of Hoffman and The Quiet Man, from what I gather, yeah. Yeah. Quite influential, yeah. I, would have, I would have thought. Yeah, both both very. Um, he had a whole list, and everyone asks about the list, and, I, and I, for some reason I just never <laughs> have it handy. Uh, I have it, It's in this drawer somewhere, right here. Um, but, uh, yeah, he had a list of his favorite films that his wife gave me. Um, so these were the movies that she knew that he watched over and over and over. Uh, so I... I studied those movies to see what um, to see what if I could figure out if I could see George Romero in those movies if I could watch The Quiet Man and see scenes that I'm like okay I see how that influenced you know whatever Land of the Dead or something uh, and then I could try to be inspired by those same pieces of art and that was a kind of a strange idea um, but I think it really paid off. Uh, and certainly the two that you mentioned, Tales of Hoffman and Quiet Man, uh, studying those paid major dividends, um, really opened up uh, themes and ideas that I don't think I would have come up with otherwise. Did you ever get like a writer's block or anything, you know, during this process? I mean, because if, you know, you're collaborating and, you know, I've collaborated with people before and I've kind of chatted with them and said, what do you think we should do for this? How should we do that? And I Obviously, sadly, you didn't have that sort of uh, to go to mm -hmm. fall back on. You only had like the notes and stuff. So was there ever a point when you kind of think you, you hit a block and you just didn't know what to do? Well, there were, there were certainly points when we received some of the other pieces or found other pieces of material that caused me to have to go back and um, change things. Uh, because, you know, I might have been hundreds of pages into the book. And then we get these notes that say, that George was planning to do something totally different. So I had to kind of 
uh, reconfigure things. Um, but those certainly weren't writer's blocks. There was were it was more like writer uh, frustration, <laughs> but it was yeah. but it was also writer excitement. You know, it was always uh, very exciting to get new material from George. Uh, some of it would magically line up to what I had done. It was uncanny. Uh, some of it didn't. Some of it was totally different, and I had to deal with it. But um, my favorite example is that um, we both independently invented a character, a fighter pilot named Jenny. Who was uh, an important character? We I, and I, I had no idea. Uh, I, I made that character. Then uh, I was writing it, and then got these notes. And he had he had invented the exact same character. Wild. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy kismet, isn't it? And and, you, and you're right. Yeah, that she's quite well. She's very pivotal in the story. Uh, I'll say I won't say anything more. But yeah, she's she really does uh, does move the plot along a lot. So that's it's quite yeah. It's almost. Uh, as if George from beyond the grave was yeah. guiding you, you know, yeah. into being able to do some of his bidding, which is, uh, yeah, a bit spooky, but there you go. Can I ask, did you ever have any kind of conflict? Um, like like you said, if you're, if you're writing a story and then suddenly you found out that George had produced these, you know, these notes of how he wanted it to go, mm-hmm. were you ever kind of like sat there thinking, oh, but my ideas just feel so much better? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, Anytime you collaborate, that's going to be uh, uh, an issue. And but it's not necessarily a bad issue. It's kind of what you want. You want there to be two. Otherwise, you just write the book yourself. You want there to be two viewpoints that are going to interlace in interesting ways and help. Hopefully, push the other person out of their comfort zone a little. Uh, so I did kind of. I tried to welcome that whenever I could, and. Uh, most of the times I would, because George wasn't around to defend himself, uh, I usually tried to find a way to go his direction. Uh, like, so if there was an, a, a next point that I had to hit, uh, I would f- I would find some creative way to make it work. And this is why I did so much outlining and so much work uh, prior to writing is I had to get all these all these problems and issues figured out before I really got deep into the, the prose part of it. Um, but yeah, there were, there were certainly a couple sequences that I can think of of his that did get cut out um, that I couldn't figure out w- how they could work. And usually I was very creative. I'd, I'd, re- I'd change some characters to some other characters. I'd put it somewhere else in the book. I'd find some way to use it. But there were a couple times that I couldn't. And that, that was a, a always unfortunate and it made me a little sad because we uh, you know we only had a certain number of words from him so uh, i hated to do that but in any editing process that's going to happen i suppose this is a, a kind of bolt on to alan's question and i think you half answered it earlier because i think you inferred that sue's sort of gave you the package of the materials the manuscript and then and some other uh documentation and then you kind of went away and, and you worked through your process but I suppose, did you at any time go back to Sue's to say, here's the work so far, what do you think? Or did you wait until the end? And, and how was that sort of for mm-hmm. the first time? Yeah, that was that was uh, really something that I was nervous about, uh, certainly. Um, and no, they, did, they didn't ask to see it during the process. I had sketched it out pretty well. So they were just like, all right, write it, and then we'll look at it. So I wrote the whole thing. Oh, wow. Um, which was 
you know, nerve wracking. It is long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, along the way, I would touch I would touch base with her. It, it usually wouldn't be. Um, it certainly wasn't with with the with the book, but I might have questions along the way where I would I would say I'm writing this section about this and I don't understand what George was saying. Do you have any ideas what what this meant or whatever? Um, so eventually, yeah, I, I finished a draft and I sent it to her and, um, yeah, that was kind of nerve wracking, but she, uh, she, she really, really loved it. Um, and that to me, that was the only, you know, review that, that I was worried about. So I felt very good about, I still feel very good about that. Good. Good. Uh, one thing I was reading in your author's notes, uh, was, uh, a small regret of George's around the uh, in Night of the Living Dead. It's inferred that the zombie outbreak could be due to the radiation from a crashed space probe of some sort. And then he spent the next elements of his work trying to eradicate that and and leave it open to interpretation. So I guess the question's kind of twofold because uh, were you tempted in the book to put put some kind of cause or come some kind of background as to why the outbreak might have happened uh and whether you were or not i suppose the next part is if you had to pick something what would you pick mm -hmm. yeah he he hated that 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 the venus probe it was called in night living dead he hated that that was there um his contention was uh the original script had other ideas so it was supposed to be a uh, feeling of nobody understood it. So people had various ideas, but everything else got cut out. So all that's left was the Venus probe that suggested there was something extraterrestrial going on. And he didn't like that. Um, I think he liked the zombies because they were a very clean metaphor. And once you add any kind of science behind it, it, it screws it up, uh, muddies the message. Mm. Um, so he was very adamant in this book that, there be no science-based technological extraterrestrial uh, reason for this. I mean, oh. it was it was just spelled out right in the text that it, oh, really that we were oh, wow. we were that there would be no reason. So, so no, there. I stayed completely away from that. Now there are sort of philosophical ideas behind it that come out in the book, um, and people in the book certainly have their own theories, but nothing definitive was wanted interesting and if you had to pick something what might be a reason that you would like if you had to pick something that's i can't say an impossible question really <laughs> i mean I'm, I'm such a uh a devotee of um the romero world. that i wouldn't i just would i would i wouldn't pick anything i would just choose the way he did it which we is it. we don't know no i think that's probably the best way i think that's probably the soundest way you leave it open to interpretation for the reader, don't you? Then and then it's they can draw their yeah. own conclusions. Yeah. And the zombies were really just in in a lot of ways they were just stand-ins. You know, it could have been anything. You know, outside of that farmhouse, he was in. He was interested in what was happening inside the farmhouse. Yeah, and the uh, confrontations going on within the people of the farmhouse and focusing on that. Yeah. No. No, I can see that. That that makes that makes sense. That makes certain sense. Yeah. No, I can understand that. Uh, I suppose just moving on slightly, uh, talking about the book, uh, it's full of little 
nods to Romero's universe. And uh, I think the fans are going to spot a lot of nice Easter eggs in there. Uh, and, you know, little hints, you know, to what they have seen in previous films and, and understood from from his uh, his ethos. So, so I guess, did, was it more you working those in as a kind of homage to George or was some of that already in the source material? Uh, most of that was me. Um, oh, good. In some of the uh, Day of the Dead, page, or I'm sorry, Death of the Dead pages that we incorporated, he did some of that. Um but uh, most of those little nods were me. Uh, and they have to be very, very minute nods because, you know, the rights to those characters are all over the place. So uh, any allusion to them has to be pretty, pretty vague or pretty uh, sly. But yeah, I mean, it was important to me. I wanted to, it, it, I was, this was sort of my chance to not just finish the story, but to really send off George in uh, a grand way. And so there are things in the book that are kind of homages to George as a person. Um, there's a relationship in the book that is really modeled after his relationship with his wife. Um, there's a group of people in near the end of the book who are modeled after the original uh, uh, cast and crew who made Night of the Living Dead. Um, and there are nods to his work as a whole with the idea that um, he was a storyteller. And once the, the zombies wipe out, a, wipe out the world, uh, telling stories becomes really, really important, an important way to remember our past. So all those things were ways that I could um, additionally honor uh, him and uh, what he had uh, given me and given a lot of other people. Cool. No, it makes sense. I can see where that's coming from. Uh, I suppose what I would probably say is that they're definitely there to spot. And, if you know, I think the devoted fan is going to see them and appreciate those. I think I think that's that's definitely going to be definitely going to be a good uh, talking point as more and more people get to finish the uh, the book itself. Uh, I suppose just perhaps moving slightly outside uh, the Romero universe, I was thinking, uh, was there any influences that you drew on externally to his universe? Any favorite horror films that you've got, or any uh, artists that you like as well that may have drawn on? Not much. I mean, it it was really I had my hands full with just all the George Romero material, and then the 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 art of his that he liked. So I, again, I studied those movies that he studied. I did go back and also watched the movies that inspired him to make night living dead just to get an idea of where he was at the beginning of his career so that was stuff like howard hawks the thing um uh last man on earth various versions of i am legend and um a movie called panic in year zero which isn't as well known but um he claims was a uh was a uh, influence and if you watch it it's very clear that it was a major influence um it's a really it's a really great movie if you can find it have to check that out yeah yeah it's like yeah it's it's once you know that it inspired uh, night living dead it, it becomes very clear um beyond that no i i uh i'm sure i was unconsciously influenced by things as all all people are but um nothing nothing specific 
Okay, just talking about influences and stuff, just to kind of move away just a little bit for a moment. Um, what sort of uh, things influenced you to start picking up the pen and start writing your own novels? Well, you know, I started writing uh, stories when I was very young, uh, maybe like, I don't know, six years old, you know, like really, really quite young. Uh, I had a friend who lived near me and we would write, We well, essentially we'd draw pictures of monsters and then eventually we would write stories where the monsters would fight each other. So the stories were just an excuse for something to do with the monsters, kind of like Godzilla versus Mothra type of things. Um, and I just never stopped. I wrote stories all throughout growing up and eventually started writing um, novella uh, length things and maybe middle school and by high school I was writing novel length um, manuscripts. Uh, so it, I can't really remember specific writers that influenced me before Stephen King. I probably got into Stephen King maybe around I don't really know, 11 or 12 years old. Um, uh, Clive Barker was a big influence. Um, once I got into middle school and discovered him, um, Stephen King was very relatable. I think that's what a lot of people, um, uh, you know, especially where I was from, which was a small town. Um, but but uh, Clive Barker wasn't relatable. Like he was, he was writing stories that were, urban and weird uh and uh transgressive and all of these things that uh just blew my mind uh and were like nothing else i had so so i yeah i grew up in london which is probably the complete opposite of your small town yeah. rural iowa background and uh we're, we're you're only about two years older than me so we're quite similar ages and and you know grew up around the same sort of time and and i got into clive barker massively i, I and I still am. And uh, I think probably what helped me is that I was in a big city and I would hit all the, hit all, like, the comic shops with friends and we'd do the rounds and whatever else. And, and you would stumble across these things and then you'd pick them up because they interested you and you'd get more into it. But I'm just thinking, how did you discover Clive Barker through you know, being in this sort of small <laughs> rural town? And, yeah. You know, you know, there, you, there were no... head comes on the shelf. Yeah, there were no comic book shops. There were uh, none of that. What there was was um, we had a we had a kind of a, for lack of a better term, kind of a gift store, a gift shop, and it had some books and had some magazines. Um, so it would have uh, a small selection of popular books, and but at some point there. That Clive Barker uh, was in that group, you know, like uh, I remember um, uh, wasn't Damnation Game it was one of his story collections. Uh, so not that one specifically um, in human condition and uh, another one, but those did pop up on those those shelves because they had a little horror section. I mean, it was the 80s. So horror was in, in vogue, at least in America, it was. Um, so there was, there was a little bit of room for horror on those shelves. Um, and I think most famously Stephen King had blurbed the hell out of him. He was like, Stephen King said, Clive Barker was the, the new thing. He was the best. Yeah. He was the second coming. Yeah. So as a kid, that's probably what introduced me 
to Clive Barker. But yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of options. So I'm I'm glad he was his books made the cut because the the cut was very small. So I guess just being a fan as well, I guess I have to ask if you've uh, read a lot, favorite Clive Barker book. I mean, my favorite I think will always be Weave World. Oh, nice. um, I just that was out of all of his books. That's the one that when I read it in middle school, that's the one that really captured me. And I was so impressed by the, the ambition of it and the the scale and the the vision. Um, It was just like, unlike anything that I'd, I'd ever read. I mean, Stephen King had written long books, but they weren't, they weren't creating worlds within worlds. Um, I so sentimentally, that's still my favorite. No, I, I've got a lot of time for Weave World. It's been a long time since I picked it up, but yeah, I've got a lot of time for Weave World. Uh, Cold Heart Canyon, I think, is one that doesn't get enough. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In, I haven't in, read that since it came out. Rest. Yeah, I, haven't, I probably haven't either. But I really like that as well. The ethereal ghosts and everything else. I really got into that. Was that was really good. Uh, but of course, you've got you know Nightbreed and. Hellraiser are just timeless, just, you know, no matter how much time goes by, they're just influenced yeah. all the time. And, and uh, the movie, yeah, the movie Hellraiser, that really cemented it for me because I saw that. I mean, that came out when we were pretty young. Yeah, uh, 86 or something, yeah. Yeah, I was still pretty young, but I saw that, you know, after we got a VCR. Uh, soon after that, I saw that. And that's a pretty startling movie to see when you're young. Uh but again, it had that same, although it's tonally very different than Weave World, it still had that sense of this is a guy who's thinking in a way that I've never thought before. Like his, his, he's, he's just creating, he's connecting thoughts yeah. in a way that's completely foreign to me. And so that was very exciting. So I don't know if this is a bit kind of, kind of personal, but forgive me if it is, but I can kind of relate to this in a way. So your mum's the sort of horror fan. Mm-hmm. She's introduced you to Night of the Living Dead. That's the start of your journey. So much time goes by. Now you're bringing home Hellraiser, which is definitely not Night of the Living Dead, and it's it's its whole yeah. different thing. What 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 do your parents think about this? Did would, would they have known about that, or were they like thinking he's off on his own journey now? It's fine, or um, bothered? They largely didn't know about it. Uh, <laughs> my my mom probably knew about some of it and she was fine with it like she understood that that um i liked romero and and uh, twilight zone she saw me reading stephen king books and recognized these are all positive activities i was reading i was reading all the time and that's what you want to see your kid doing my dad was a uh, very different he uh he definitely would not appreciate me watching certain things so I think my mom and I had sort of a silent agreement that uh, I could pretty much rent whatever I wanted as long as I watched it when my dad wasn't around. Excellent. <laughs> uh, like and I, and I, yeah. I took full advantage of that. Good. Excellent. Excellent. No, it's good. And yeah, Clive Barker and his body of work really is, yeah, definitely got to be something that any body worth their soul in horror uh, should get into because it's just like you say, it's, there were worlds to explore, and he goes to places you wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, I recently managed to catch the uh, Leviathan, a documentary, The Making of Hellraiser 2, which is great insight. Yeah, really, really good insight. Yeah, I, did, I know of that, but I haven't seen it. I also haven't seen the documentary about the making of um, 
Nightbreed. No, I haven't either. And I haven't even seen the uh, Cabal Cut. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, actually, I just watched that. Um, I hadn't seen it either. I just watched that um, last week. Is, the, is some of the cutout footage quite raw? I've heard it's, it's pretty raw, some of the cutout footage, but it may have been mastered since. No, it was mastered since. Uh, originally, it was raw, and then someone found like a better version. So it's seamless. It all looks great. Oh, brilliant. Excellent. You, you kind of have to look for it, don't you? You kind of have to know the film in its original cut. You would have to then, know yeah. it pretty well, because yeah. it, it all looks exactly the same, well, as, far as, as far as quality goes, yeah. Good, because when it when, when it first started to surface on the internet, there was this cabal cut, and it was quite a, an extensive amount of like footage, but it, it, it wasn't the best of quality, and some of the special effects shots hadn't been completed. I, not that I was ever put off, but I was just thinking oh, that's going to be something I'm going to have to try to try to watch. But it sounds like it's been worked on and worked on yeah. again maybe since this, since then. Good, that's good. That's good news. That's good news. Uh, I'm going to bring it back slightly back to the world of Romero and zombies just uh, before. Uh, this gets too much into my own kind of personal preferences. Uh, I know through some of the author's notes and having read the book that you did take that journey into zombie animals. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could give us a bit of an insight into a bit of background around that. Yeah, I think uh, that'll, that will be one of the things that uh, Romero Purist will be most um, surprised by. Uh, and I and I will will agree with him. Like it was not something that I thought was going to be in the book. Uh, there were no zombie animals in any of his films. But one of the things that my research turned up was that he was um, almost obsessed with them. Really, near the end, he he talked about zombie animals a lot in the last few years of his life. Uh, commentary tracks, interviews. He would. Um, just he would sort of kind of teasingly or coyly say, yeah, I'm really thinking about that. So I, I think they were really eminent. And uh, most tellingly in Land of the Dead, there was a zombie rat scene that um, was cut out at the last second um, for budget reasons. And from what, script stage or do you think they actually shot it? They, they didn't shoot it, no. Oh. They, uh, but right before they went into production is when they cut it out. And apparently it was just for budget reasons. Like it was going to be difficult to do. Uh, so um, I went back and read the script of Land of the Dead and read the zombie rat scene. Because um, I was wrestling with what to do with this information. Uh, clearly he was heading in that direction, but he hadn't gotten there yet. So what do I do? Um, and the zombie rat scene in Land of the Dead uh, ended up being pretty pivotal. Uh, because it made me realize something. Uh, the rats, the zombie rat scene, uh, the zombie rats aren't attacking other rats, you know? So they're attacking the people. So, this, so the zombie rats are not cannibals. Um, so thus, we can extend that and say that the um, no zombies are cannibals. Uh, otherwise, rats would be attacking rats, humans would be attacking humans, Chickens would be attacking chickens. Uh, everyone's attacking uh, humans. No matter what kind of zombie you are, you're attacking humans. So that meant all zombies were anti-human. And that opened up a huge door for me. And I began to realize, okay, so if there's all sorts of zombies and they're all anti-human, why? Is, why, is, why is everything against us? Uh, and what have we done to deserve this? And what are the zombies here for? Uh, 
Um, that doesn't mean no doesn't that doesn't interfere with the question of why they happened because uh, we don't want to answer that. But what is their purpose? What is their is there an end game here? And so I came up with uh, my interpretation of that, uh, which is spelled out in the author's note. So anyone hates it, they can they can yell <laughs> at me after they read the author's note. But I took what I thought was a pretty logical uh, leap and ended up using that thread of thought to come up with a, uh, a, a grander picture of where the zombies were heading uh, as far as like how they would affect, how they would continue to affect the world 10, 15 years later uh, and what our reaction to that would be. If, if we could realize why they were here, would we change the way we were behaving? No, this makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, like I said, read the book. I think the inclusion of the zombie animals is very good. I think it does drive some very good excitement in the book, and there's some good edge of the seat reading to be done there. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad it made it in. What the purists say, well, they can say, but I'm definitely, uh, definitely down. Well, down I'm a that. purist, so and you put it in. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's, so that's the I mean, right there. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure this is uh, is uh, canon, so they're going to yeah, have to deal with it. Definitely canon. I suppose just yeah, thinking of canon uh, and the books and sorry, not uh, the movies and uh, the book and how that slots in. I guess I'm being a bit cheeky. Here, but it's probably a little bit too early uh, to even go down this road. But do you see the universe expanding either outwards? Uh, exp you know. Ex extending some of the what's picked up in the books or going even further forward beyond the 15 years? I mean, it's always possible. The, the difficulty there, I mean, it's a big world. So even if the living novel is the end, there's a big world in there. There's many, thinking, there, yeah. there are many stories you could tell. The question is, um, you know, who's going to tell them? Uh, it, what's so great about this book is it's filled with George Amiro, like his writing. Um, as far as I know, we're, we're kind of at the end of it. Um, so anything that could be written from here again, as far as I know, um, would have to be inspired by George Amiro rather than oh, yeah. written by George Amiro. So, um, so that's, I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It would just have to be, you know, just like people are writing star Wars novels or whatever. Like it's, I think it could happen. It would just have to be understood that it was um, sort of a, a splinter off of uh, what, what George, what we, what we know of what George wanted. Yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. It's, yeah, there'd have to be, I mean, I don't want to say fan fiction is probably not quite the right phrase. It's one step above that, but it wouldn't be George. So there'd have to be that kind mm -hmm. of understanding from the get-go, I guess, wouldn't it? And then no, yeah, but there's always the chance that there's, more stuff out there you know the archives are still being explored so it's always possible oh. there there are things that were cut out of this book that um were really pretty great i just oh, wow. they just didn't fit in the book so i mean it's always possible that could be the seed of something but i just mm. it's it's far too early to know no i yeah i guess well we'll we'll certainly uh be keeping our fingers crossed who knows maybe there could be more for us to uh Devour, like the zombies devour the humans. Uh, just touching on uh, one last thing in the book, because uh, it's something I've got an interest in, is uh, there is some zombie point of mm -hmm. 
view stuff was that George's or did you introduce that uh it's both he introduced the zombie point of view I don't think I would have done it um on my own I, I don't know if it just wouldn't have occurred to me or whatever but yeah he had written in his manuscript zombie points of view and in addition uh I referred earlier to a uh, sort of an unpublished short story we found of his and that was a story that was from the point of view of a zombie um so we we had uh I had a couple things to draw from from that um, and those are very instructive to see how George saw from the zombies' eyes. And I learned a lot about zombies. Like I had an ongoing document where I would put everything that I knew about zombies from watching his movies. You know, they could do this, they couldn't do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and those that short story and the, the scenes he had written in this manuscript were really helpful. Like I would learn that, you know, they, they can feel hot and cold, but only at extremes. Uh, I learned how they tasted, how they smelled things. So I learned a lot from these documents. Um, but the style in which they're written in this book is me. Uh, so I, I took those, because based on this whole uh, theory I came up with, it has to do with zombie animals and the, uh, the reason why zombies are, have occurred in the first place, that required a slightly different tweak on what I, what I thought of the zombie point of view. So it was his idea, but sort of I changed the point of view of it slightly, how it's written, okay. so that it's so the zombies are sort of all speaking in, in the uh, the same voice. It's sort of a group, a group point of view. Um, so that element was mine. So I, I, it got me remembering, and I, I'd be surprised. You, you may be aware, although I, I understood if you weren't, because it, it's probably not out there too much. There's uh, a British ultra low budget movie made purely from the point of view of a zombie and it's called Colin and that's why I remember it and I wondered if were you aware of that or have you I have been wanting to see that forever oh, uh, I remember I remember when that movie came out and I read about it and I thought that sounds so cool and I've never been able to find it but I but I forgot about it so is it available I it probably is in the UK I don't know internationally if I find it and I <laughs> Get it digitally. I will work out a way to send it to you, whether it's Dropbox or whatever it may be. Because okay, I'm taking a note of it, it too. Yeah, do it's just called Colin. That's the name of the guy who gets uh, zombified. That's the right word, and it just follows him. And it's even made around where I live, and I and I didn't know it was even happening. Uh, Is it from his like his eyes? Yeah, you literally follow. Yeah. not necessarily from There's, his eyes, but you literally follow him as he yeah. just wanders. And that's literally the whole film, just following him and just his journey. I think there's some memory in it, because I think he does visit family members. Uh, mm -hmm. And then there's a scene, and like I said, it's ultra low budget. Uh, I think all the actors were friends and family and the special well, effects, I mean, obviously. But it's still great. I don't want to take that away from me. That's my favorite kind of horror exactly. film. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, let me give you a, another uh, recommendation that's similar, is there's a you know, it might it might be British too. I'm not sure, but there's a pretty obscure movie called Eye Zombie, not not the small eye, but like Eye comma Zombie. Oh, okay. That um, that I'm the, well. I don't know anyone else who's ever seen it. Um, and it's real low budget, uh, and and kind of it, it isn't. I don't think it's probably quite like Colin, but but basically it just follows one guy who's been bitten and is slowly turning into a zombie. Um, but I think it's really interesting. Uh, and probably make a good pairing with Colin. A good double bill if you need yeah, to. Yeah, if you can uh, find it. Have some zombie stuff going on. Yeah, I, I will definitely look for that, and I'll 
I will check out how kind of Colin can be obtained and see if we can get it over the pond for you because it's definitely Great. something to see. Uh, I suppose I had a couple of other little bits. Uh, zombie wolves, always a controversial subject. I, I mean, not only do you stick to the origins of the movies and how they behave and how they act, uh, I don't think I'm spoiling it too much here, but for a long way through the book, they referred to as ghouls, like in Night of the Living Dead, which I think was a really good good homage. Uh, and then you even provide, actually, I just remembered you, in the book, you do provide a little bit of a background or reasoning uh, to the word zombie. Mm. Uh, now, forgive my ignorance, is that based on some factual research that you did, or is that just a bit of play for the book? Yeah, that's that's right. That's all real. Oh, yeah, good. cool. The, cool. the idea of the zombie... Um, is really a, a part of primarily Haitian voodoo culture. Um, now, their their zombie uh, it, it bears very little relation to the George Romero zombie, but that's where the word comes from. And um, I was able to to sort of find a way to tie them together just a little bit, um, but it's quite different. If you've ever seen the um, the movie Serpent in the Rainbow that mm. Wes Craven made. That's all based on uh, fact. It's the, the movie takes a lot of liberties. It's not really, uh, it doesn't stick to the facts very well, but it's based on a book that is a nonfiction book. It's a very, it's an extremely interesting topic. And it's one that George himself was really interested in. Oh, is, it, is that notable through looking through his own manuscript and some of the other archive? material yeah i think i think it was um i think it did pop up in at least one other work that i saw in there so um you know i think it's inevitable uh that you know with him suddenly being godfather of the zombies that he would investigate the history of the zombie mm -hmm. yeah um and become quite interested in it cool cool that's good i've got one, Go on, question. one last question i want to ask you daniel um mm. This is your zombie book. Can you foresee yourself in the future writing anything more zombie-ish, or is this the one? Is this it done for you now? I mean, I assume this is probably it. I mean, I again, I never had any intent on writing a, a zombie book at all. Uh, I was quite satisfied with uh, Ramiro's uh, work. I think this was the only zombie book I ever would have wanted to have been associated with. Um, you know, there's so much zombie stuff out there that uh, it's... Um, it's just, for me, it's just almost too much. Uh, the one exception to that in my brain was something from the creator himself. Uh, that was a different story. Yeah, of course I'd want to be involved with that. Um, so no, unless there's, unless there's some offshoot from this book that somehow uh, happens at some point in conjunction with the Romero estate, um, I probably won't. I like to keep things different. Um, I, I tend not to write series. Um, I, I like to, to move in that model where every book is its own universe. So I, I'll put it this way. I doubt it, um, but you never know. Well, I'm going to be a big, big advocate for an offshoot story. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, think I think there's a lot of, uh, Look, lot of opportunity there. You're not the first person to say that, and that makes me really happy. Um, if, if there's some legitimate way that um, the estate and I could find to do something that included George. Like if we could find more pages of his or, or something that, that made it genuinely partly him contributing, uh, 
then I'd be I'd be definitely open to it. So we we are we we're coming up on the hour, but I've just got a few bits and pieces I want to give you a chance to do, and then sort of one last question. You've got the poster of the amusement park in your mm-hmm. background there, George's lost film. Uh, I don't know if it's made its way over to the UK yet, but I know there's been a couple of screenings uh, over there stateside. You've you've seen that, I guess. You've managed yes. to see that, and it's a pretty powerful piece of work, from what I understand. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a major rediscovery. It's um, it was made right around the time he was doing the crazies, uh, and has that kind of energy. Like it's really manic, and it's. Um, disturbingly bright. It's all out in the bright sun and the soundtrack is loud and disorienting. It's a very disturbing film. Um, and I can't wait for people to see it. I think from what I understand, you know, they, they finally, the estate finally settled on a, um, a, uh, what do you call them? Uh, producer's agent or whatever who, uh, will help them decide, uh, which distributor to go with. So oh, cool. I think it, it will, I'm sure, I bet something will be announced pretty soon. I think people uh, will be seeing it um, certainly next year, if not before. We look forward to that, hopefully coming to our shores very soon. Uh, so just rounding off, I suppose, I just want to talk quickly about, uh, first of all, I guess there's a paperback coming soon of the book. Mm. Is that that's yeah. this year or is that delayed? Because maybe next Well, uh, I don't know how, how it's, being handled in the uk um i don't know if they sometimes i know uk will do a paperback simultaneously with the hardcover so i don't i don't know about the uk there's no paperback here yet not okay. that i know of uh I, I can only tell you in the u.s um the the paperback will be out in about a year so next fall the okay. paperback will be out um there are other countries who have editions coming out and um i i don't know what they're up to exactly so interesting with everything that's going on. How are you getting around promoting the book? Have you got any virtual book tours and, and other online yeah. exercises going on? Yeah, I've spent the last few weeks um, doing stuff like this, you know, just like talking to people um, from my home. Uh, there was there was a giant book tour planned originally. Um, so it, it's a bummer not to be able to, to go out in person. We were going to show Romero movies and talk about the book. Um, but this has been good too. You know, there, uh, the upside, there's, there's lots of downsides to this, to, to this type of promotion, um, replacing in person, but there's, there's nice upsides too. Like, you know, more people are, you know, like you don't have to show up to a bookstore that's out of your way. You can just kind of log on. And I think that's been really cool. And I expect some of that will not go away. Uh, I expect this kind of thing to continue. And I really like it. Um, I love being able to, you know, just be here in my office and, and, and talk to you guys about this. Uh, you know, George Amir is my favorite topic. So I, I love talking. Yeah. About well, it. No, we've enjoyed it as well. And we've been looking forward to it. Both, both I myself and Alan, I mean, we're both fans and Alan's an author as well. So we've been looking forward to it. And, and we honestly don't know, uh, had you been busy crisscrossing the United States, possibly even, I don't know, the Atlantic Ocean, if you take have time for these sorts of things, you know. So it's a whole different kind of exposure that we're definitely uh, appreciative of. It's one of the one of the good things to come out of 2020. Yeah, yeah, I think it, I think um, I think it's been great overall. Yeah. 
So have you got any other works coming out? Anything on the horizon for us to keep an eye out for? Yeah, I do. Um, I'm, I've had a busy year. I've had uh, five things come out in 12 months. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I, I couldn't. <laughs> but I picked the worst. I picked the worst year to do that. Um, uh, so of the five projects, Living Dead is the third. And then next month, I have two other things coming out. I've got um, a kid's book called They Threw Us Away, which is kind of a watership down type story uh, with teddy bears who wake up in this trash dump and they have to figure out why they were thrown away. Uh, and then at the end of September, I have uh, the first issue of a eight issue comic coming out from Vault Comics, and that's called uh, the Autumnal, and that's kind of a folk horror type thing. Oh, so you step, you have stepped back into horror then, albeit not zombie. Related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I love horror. That's sort of my 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 safe zone, my sweet spot. I stray from it all the time, but I always come back. It's interesting you talk about the children's books because, of course. Uh... Clive Barker wrote in children's books, which you'd never mm-hmm. think of, yeah. you know, given what is what, what he's like, you know, kind of famous for. So that's that's a good thing that you've done. There. So you've got some good stuff coming out this year. We'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, we'll put some links and some kind of plugs below uh, when this goes live. We'll, we'll get people where I guess they can get the book at all the usual outlets. Is there any yeah. where we should maybe go specifically that benefits you? No, the money. You can, uh, yeah, love, you know. Try to avoid Amazon if you can. If it's convenient for you, go ahead. But uh, I always prefer local bookstores. If you want a signed copy, there's a bookstore in Chicago called Mad Street Books. And they, they're handling all my uh, signed copies. They're nearby, so I just run down there and sign books. Do they ship internationally? That's going to be my question. I'm sure they do, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how cheap it is, but I'm no, sure they do. If it's a signed copy, I mean, we're going to... Happily pay a bit extra for shipping. Yeah, well, I, 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 I know they have. I think I've seen copies, people, photos of copies already in the UK. Cool. Uh, you're all over social media. I guess you're 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 on Twitter and Instagram and all the usual platforms. Yeah, yeah. For now, um, <laughs> until I, you get too busy again. I, I've had a lot of promotion to do, so I've been on a lot of them. But I do disappear every now and again for a while. Um, but if you go to DanielKraus.com. Uh, K-R-A-U-S, that's always the best spot because then you can, it'll have links to whatever, yeah, wherever, wherever else wanna, you can find me. I definitely want to want to check out the uh, Death and Life of Zebulus Finch. That looks yeah, like that's my that's my uh, that's my favorite thing that I've done. So yeah, did you, that's Was what that I a while ago you wrote that? <sighs> yeah, it was a while ago. Um, I don't know how long ago. I'll Five or six there. years maybe? Okay. Yeah, I, when I was going through some of your back catalogue and I saw you, uh, uh, I didn't ask Guillermo del Toro, of course, c- collaborating with uh, him. Yeah, that must have been quite an experience. Yeah, it really was, uh, particularly with Shape of Water, you know. Um, uh, you know, but, but any any kind of press for a book is teeny tiny compared to movie press. Yeah. Um, and I did get to go on some of the, you know, I went to the Venice Film Festival and oh, nice. uh, Toronto and, and the Oscars. So I did get to um, travel a bit with the movie. And that was that was a one once in a lifetime experience just because you just don't get treated like that. in books. I was gonna, Yeah, I was, no, was going to say, yeah, not in the, well, 
Alan, have you been to the Oscars? I don't know. Is that something you've been Not the Oscars, play, no. Play, play <laughs> fame to just yet. <laughs> it's on my list. It's on my list. I haven't been there yeah. yet. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Well, listen, Daniel, you've been great. It's been awesome talking to you. Uh, we're going to plug the book. We'll get all your social media links under the video. Uh, it's going to go up on YouTube in about a week or so. We'll get it edited and a bit refined and, and all my arm and nerve and we'll get that all cut out so it looks like we know what we're doing off. Uh, uh -huh. And then, yeah, maybe have you back when your next piece of work comes out or the you know, paperback comes out. If you're happy to yeah. have a bit of time, we'll happily... Yeah, I would love to. This, stuff, this stuff I want to talk about, you know, more yeah. Parker and all yeah. those awesome stuff. Yeah, I mean, this was this was great. So anytime you you want to talk again, you just let me know. Brilliant, we'll hit you up. Thanks very much. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. So I really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. See Thanks, you guys. Daniel, right, take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. That was Daniel Kraus, uh, and uh, I think he's a really cool guy and a really chilled out dude and i would say get his book i've got the book i've read the book uh, believe it or not all 635 pages uh, i couldn't put it down basically alan i couldn't put it put it down that was part of the reason why it got read so so quick it's it really i mean i wanted to try to read it before we did this but i kind of had it in my mind if i can just read as much as i can that would yeah. help because it, it only came a week before uh, but i got it all read so so there you go so yeah thank you daniel for your time uh we're going to sign off. So here's uh, Outlaw Colin saying, catch you later.